0: You can follow with what's on the screen as well. If you want to guarantee a crowd at a Christian conference or Christian gathering. There are three topics that are ideal, and uh, one is uh, the millennium, another is sex, and another is the Holy Spirit. Well, we did the millennium two years ago, uh, when we did the Book of Revelation at Summer Fun. Uh, We're doing the Spirit this time, so I guess next year it's the Song of Songs. Um, So that'll... (laughs) We'll see who comes back. <laughs> Let's pray, Heavenly Father. Thank you for again all the good things we've enjoyed today, and thank you for the way you are knitting us together as your people closer. We pray that that uh, process would continue, and we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight, uh, a charitable uh, nature as we consider sometimes controversial things. Pray that there would be a loving spirit among us and we'd be willing to listen to one another and above all listen to you. So we pray that as we open your word, you would speak for your glory's sake. Amen. I'm here. Um, I'm not gonna give you all the answers because I don't have them Um, and this is not going to be a sort of last word by any stretch of the imagination, it's not going to be be all and end all Um, and as I was sort of thinking about it I thought that the best way to go about this was just to sort of give a few more personal reflections on how I see these things Um, and uh, so it, it, it's not a very sort of structured argument or anything like that, but I, I, just a, a few thoughts that have, hopefully will help us to think uh, this uh, business through. And obviously, I come from a very specific point of view at one level in terms of background. I'm an Anglican, and that implies perhaps certain things about church order and what happens when churches get together. Um, And I'm not a charismatic, and that implies certain things about this, that, and the other. But I've lived and worked in Africa, where actually the default setting, certainly in Uganda where we were, the default setting for church life, whether you're Anglican, Anglican, Pentecostal, or Roman Catholic, was pretty much charismatic. That was the sort of default position. So, you know, you could walk into a Catholic church uh, in Kampala, and apart from the robes, think you were in a Pentecostal church. And I think that, that whole experience of being there did me a lot of good for all kinds of reasons, but uh, it certainly gave me insights and, and uh, certainly a, a degree of respect. But uh, let me start with some preliminary agreements, some things that actually are the foundations without which we can't do business, you know, if we disagree. And I, I guess even amongst this group here, there's a sort of range of opinions. Um, about how the Holy Spirit is at work today and what we can expect. I guess it's, it's our expectations of the Spirit's work that actually is where um, the, the, the discussions and perhaps the tensions arise. And of course, the Holy Spirit is very active in Luke-Acts, but uh, particularly we see what he gets up to in individual believers and, uh, and leaders in the book of Acts. The interesting thing is that uh, Luke in both his books, doesn't tell us a lot about the Spirit. He just narrates what he gets up to. Funnily enough, for more in-depth explanation and rationale, we need to look to John and Paul. And uh, on the handouts, the back of the notes booklet, if you just come in, um, you'll see an outline. And uh, John and Paul particularly give fuller explanations of what the Holy Spirit does. So I want to just give the briefest of overviews just to, to, to lay out uh, our foundations. Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, that's the sort of first obvious question. And um, the first answer is that he's God. He is not an it or a, a force like in Star Wars, a sort of life force. That's not what he is. That's not who he is. He is personal. He is God. God the Holy Spirit. And uh, there are a number of verses you can can look at. uh, We don't have time to look at them all now. uh, But on the handouts, you can see in John and, for instance, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But it's interesting that uh, when Jesus speaks of uh, the Spirit as another counselor, or in the old... um, English translation is another comforter, and comforter in the original sense of the word is someone who uh, gives energy and strength, comfort, drives in with energy, and and, you know, sort of picks people up and gets them going. It's not the sort of arm around the shoulder, there, there, it's the come on type comfort. Um, But he's a counselor who draws alongside. But the important thing is that the specific word that uh, Jesus uses. Um, in in john's gospel for another implies something very important there are two words in greek for other one meaning another of the same and another word meaning another different and um, the word describing the counselor is another of the same in other words another counselor like me he is saying And that, uh, in part, I think, is is what explains why, for instance, in Paul, and you can draw it by inference from John as well, in Paul, uh, uh, the the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of Jesus. And a lot of the language we might use of God living within us, or Jesus lives within us, actually is the sort of language that derives from the fact that we trust that God's Spirit lives within us. So we might say God in Christ lives within us by his spirit, if you want to be sort of pedantically theological about it. He lives within us if we are Christian and therefore he is the means by which Jesus lives within the believer. And that is why uh, uh, John V. Taylor's famous book on the Holy Spirit was called The Go-Between God He's the one who binds us up with the Trinity. He's the one who is at work in us, binding us, uniting us with God in Christ. But he's also uh, the go-between, as in the go-between between God's work and the world. He's at work out in the world, and that leads to the second part in terms of what the Spirit does. And there are many things that the Spirit does in God's world, but I want to home in on the experience of the believer uh, and there are a number of verses there we don't have time now to look at, but uh, you can look at uh, on your own time. And you can see particularly in John and in Paul, that um, he is at work revealing God and his purposes. He starts by you know revealing the truth and exposing people to the truth so that their eyes open. And um, and lead through from uh, someone who is a complete outsider to someone who is a believer in Christ. Now, those verses, you might just turn to John sixteen, would you? You'll see in John 16, 12 and 13, Jesus speaks of the Spirit. He says, look, I've got much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Remember, these are the final hours of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. I've got much more to say to you, but you can't take it at the moment. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. In other words, he is revealing. He is speaking truth to these people. Now, the important thing to realize is that first and foremost, this is a promise to the apostles. At this unique moment in salvation history, as it's called. Because, of course, they're the ones who were with Jesus before, during, and after the crucifixion. And they're the ones who, at this particular moment, cannot take any more. Because this is a, you know, an emotionally fraught time. And they're the ones to whom Jesus promises the Spirit. So that they can reveal the things that Jesus hasn't said yet. And it is basically on that foundation that we, uh, amongst other things, build an understanding of the New Testament and why that is so important to us. Because the Spirit has been at work in these people, these apostles, to um, reveal truth, and that's what we have in this book. But the big question is, does he do this for everybody? Is this just for the apostles, or is there something wider? Uh, Paul picks up exactly the same thing in um, uh, 1 Corinthians 2. And he says that the words he speaks are, as in he, Paul, speaks, are taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. So he is very conscious that actually his own ministry is derived from the Spirit at work in him. So that's a sort of question to flag up. Is it just for the apostles, or does it go beyond? But... um, you know what everyone says. Uh, uh, you know wherever anyone draws a line, if they feel the need to to draw a line, what we can say is that it's because of the this promise that we can trust that the New Testament written by these people is reliable. But uh, it gets pretty personal because in the same chapter we find that uh, the Spirit is the one who convicts people to see what they would never otherwise accept: their sin. Sin is such an unworldly idea. Uh, people, I think, get confused, and they think sins is is the key issue. That that's what we're always banging, banging about people doing sins, and I guess you know that's pretty easy to spot. You can see sins all over the place. But sin, singular, as in a life lived without reference to God in dependence and gratitude and love and obedience. Well, you just don't see that. So in chapter 16, verse 8 of John, he says, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness and judgment. And he goes on to unpack that a little bit more. So in other words, basically, he's the one who opens people's eyes to reality of themselves. It's a pretty unworldly thing to accept. I can't make it happen in somebody else. I can talk about it, I can talk about reality, and I'm praying like mad that the spirit would be at work opening people's eyes so they can see it themselves. But I can't twist people's arms and I can't sort of of bang the drum incessantly in order to try and make them get it. They won't because it just completely goes against the grain. And he's the one who converts the sinner. That's the miracle of new birth. In John 3, we can see that. Or Titus 3, 5, uh, we can see that there. Just turn on to Titus 3, 5, would you? If you get to uh, Hebrews, you've gone too far. After one of the last of Paul's letters, Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us uh, generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. In other words, he is the one who made me alive. I was a walking corpse. See that very clearly in Ephesians 2. I was a walking corpse, spiritually. And it needed a miracle of resurrection for me to become alive again. Nothing less. The miracle of new birth. It is nothing short of a spiritual resurrection of the spiritually dead. That is a miracle. The fact that there are people sitting in this room wanting to study God's word is a miracle. Don't ever say you don't believe miracles happen today. It's nonsense. You're sitting next to one. Isn't that lovely? (laughs) And he grows the saints. He transforms us to be more holy, to be more like Christ. That's why, for instance, at the start of Romans, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of holiness. That's one of his supreme tasks in a believer is to, to change us. And to as part of that process, and it flows out of what Hugh was saying last night about uh, he equips us as his saints for service, to serve, and so that we can love the body of which we are part, because the body of which we are part is a temple of the Holy Spirit, as are we individually, temples of the Holy Spirit. He is at work in us, and basically he is the one who enables and provokes in us a desire to love and serve one another. And then we were just thinking about this in in church just a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at that uh, that prayer of Paul in Ephesians 1, um, when we saw that the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the guarantee of heaven. Now do you see, just before we sort of get into some of the controversies, do you see how all-encompassing that is? you owe everything you are to the Holy Spirit as a believer. You wouldn't be one without him. It's as simple as that. He is vital to our very life. And that's just a fact. That hopefully is our agreed foundation. You cannot... Uh, avoid the holy spirit if you're a believer you cannot not be a spirit christian as if there was such a thing as a non-spirit christian you can't be a christian without him it's as simple as that so now we come to acts well i think in acts uh, one of the biggest the biggest debate that we have with acts and in fact it's something a challenge that we have with any narrative from anywhere in the bible you know the stories of the bible Um, the, the biggest challenge is the tension between description and prescription in other words is it just telling us what happened and just leave it at that this is just history this is what happened or are we being told these things because they are there to be a template for what should happen? That is the tension. Is it there because it happened? Or is it there because it happened and should happen again? Do you see? That's the tension. And so I take it we want to be a spirit-filled church at All Souls. We want to be filled with the spirit. As you know. someone once said, you know, we need to be filled because we leak. Not quite sure of the theology there, but anyway, it sounds quite fun. Um, I take it that we want to be to, to, to dependent on God and, and his spirit at work in us. You know, the spirit is intervening at work in our very lives. I, I assume that we all want that to develop and grow. Well, when we read Acts and we read various things, like in Acts 8, you know, the extraordinary events in Samaria... And Peter, uh, Philip performing these extraordinary sort of signs and wonders, as it's called, and uh, people, you know, thought, "Wow, this is amazing!" And uh, believing the word, is it? Did they believe the word because they saw the signs? Was was that part of it? And then then the apostles come and they they preach again, and other things happen, and then, you know, they lay hands on and pray for the Holy Spirit to come because He's not come yet. And even more weird things happen? Is, is that what's meant to happen? Or, or what about just a, a couple of chapters later in Acts 10 when you have uh, Peter preaching to Cornelius and his home group and the Holy Spirit comes down and they spontaneously speak in tongues, whatever that is? And you see, when you look at the narrative, when you look at the text of Acts 10, you find, uh, and 11, what amazed. The Jewish believers was not the business of speaking in tongues, but the fact that it was Gentiles who had that experience. That's what blew their minds. So does that mean that sort of experience is normative? Is that what should happen? So, you know, you have the description of the event. This is what happened in Samaria, and this is what happened to Cornelius. Is that setting a precedent for what should happen in London in 21st century? Is this what should happen to us? Should we expect at cornerstone to have exactly the same thing? Now, I, I think one of the phrases I sort of find myself sort of coming back to again and again, um, and you know <laughs> use it when I'm talking to people, and, and it's, it's, it's one of those really annoying phrases, you know I mean, I remember having a... This is complete red herring. But anyway, I remember having a physics teacher at school who always used to say, say what you mean and mean what you say. And I used to find that really annoying. Anyway, that's... Anyway, this is a phrase that I find myself saying rather a lot now, and it's pretty annoying. But the phrase is, it's not quite as simple as that. (laughs) And that's a really annoying phrase. But I find myself saying it more and more. It's not quite as simple as that. Because, you see... Some of the things that happened in Acts, they they were important, and in fact, some of them, many of them, were were intended to be repeated. It's not an either or. It's, it's well, sometimes it seems to be a sort of bit of both. So you know, there were things that we would want to say that are good things. You know. The, the the life of the community sort of words sacrament prayer love we looked at that you know when we looked at acts four and what the community did together we would say yeah that's a good idea it's there in acts we would say yeah that's something we should repeat and carry on because they're good things um you know the whole business of mission and evangelism going out beyond uh, the sort of racial boundaries or cultural boundaries or whatever we would say yeah that's a good thing and we do that at all souls we send out mission partners Uh, And the the incredible assurance and confidence in the gospel and the boldness to preach that we see in various people. You know, the the extraordinary confidence in Jesus that Stephen had as he was being martyred. I, I would think that that was something we would want to share, isn't it? The question is, should it be everything that we see? And let me just sort of...
1: You know, really
0: be quite explicit and say, you know, what are the spirit controversies in Acts? Well, I've listed them there on on the sheets. Uh, You could divide them, I guess, under two main headings. The believers experience, and the believers in in Acts experience all kinds of fun things. So, you know, the so-called baptism of the spirit that uh, the Samaritans have. Or speaking in tongues that Cornelius does. Or later, as we will look at tomorrow, the Ephesian disciples in chapter 19. Suddenly sort of they start speaking in tongues when they get converted. Hallelujah, praise the Lord and all that. Uh, And then the the rather more sinister things like Ananias and Sapphira just falling down dead in judgment in chapters 5. And then prophecies of the future, you know, the business with Agabus and the famine. It was actually quite an important moment, and as we just sort of hinted at this morning, you know, it was a, one of those sort of stepping stones, as we saw Antioch became quite an important place. And then what about ministers' experience as they go about preaching the gospel? You know, signs and wonders, healings and exorcisms, and there's one chart in the color booklet that sort of compares... Uh, peter's ministry and paul's ministry was jesus's ministry and one of the sort of themes of Acts seems to be saying they're doing the same things as jesus and more than that actually you know, this is the big one you have raising from the dead both peter and paul raised somebody from the dead as jesus had that's pretty impressive paul did it because he spoke too long but that's another story so, what do we make of all this? Well, here are some personal thoughts. It's by no means a sort of clear cut, finished product. Uh, but um, this is uh, just a few thoughts, maybe just to get us thinking, talking, whatever. The first point I want to make is just as important as it is obvious, and that is that God is God. He's God. I just wonder whether one reason why people get concerned about the miraculous and spiritual side of things, for want of a better word, is that it actually threatens their view of God. It actually forces their view of God to expand somewhat. Because suddenly, God is no longer in my control. Suddenly forces at the heart of the universe start getting involved in my little life Which sort of flags up the big picture on the grandest scale and reminds me really of my humble lowly position And that is scary Suddenly this is actually quite real and that's a rather unnerving situation, you see, because the God of the Bible is a God who is an intervening, active God. And my charismatic friends impress me no end in their utter confidence that God is going to intervene. I think, uh, you know, very often I find myself just thinking, okay, well, this is the program we've planned, and this is the system we've got sorted, and this is how it's going to work. Um, so we'll just do all that, and I don't actually really need to pray very much about that, because we've done it last year, and it'll be Okay. I forget that actually God actually might just have other ideas and he might just do something slightly different. And that might just challenge me a little bit because it might mean that I have to take him just that weenie little bit more seriously than I have done. But of course people reject... Uh, uh, and steer clear of all this sort of miraculous and and spooky stuff for a whole host of reasons, some for theological and perhaps understandable reasons, perhaps even biblically justifiable reasons, But others for pretty hopeless reasons uh, because of their sort of worldview. Here's an extreme example. Um, Rudolf Bultmann was a, a German Lutheran professor of New Testament, Uh, And he had a profound impact on the church, and he denied practically all the details of Jesus' life as presented in the Gospels, except the fact that he'd been crucified. That was pretty much about as much as he was prepared to accept, because that is a pretty generally well-attested historical fact. But he said this, "...it is impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries... And at the same time, to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. I said that in 1941. And uh, I think there are a lot of people who think like that. There are a lot of people in the church who think like that. Another group that rejects the idea of a, a lot of these things happening in our, in our era for very different reasons, although the interesting thing is I think I'd argue that they're not unrelated uh, but is the whole cessationist position, and there's a range of views under that umbrella, but uh, <clears throat> that maintains that the so-called spiritual gifts were restricted to the apostolic era until such a time as the New Testament particularly had been completed and this sort of pioneering gospel work had finished. And I think, you know, there are it's, it's not completely bananas, that idea. It's not, you know, we don't want to just sort of dismiss it. Um, but, you know, there is a sense that now that we have the New Testament and our finished Bible, we don't need other new revelations from God in, in the same way at all. I, I think that is certainly true. And, for instance, the way the letter of the Hebrews begins seems to imply that actually something completed has occurred in terms of how God has spoken ultimately in Christ. <clears throat> but here's a rather sort of flippant one, and it's slightly unfair, but it's quite funny, so I'll throw it in anyway. Um... Moody Bible Institute in uh, Chicago, which is a place i visited, and I know one of people who teach there. Um, got a lot of respect for the place. But in the 60s, I don't think they'd have this now, but they posted instructions of what to do in case of emergencies. And they said emergencies are defined as fire, tornado, and air raid, bomb threats, emotional upset, and all suicide, sickness or injury, and charismatic activity. Oops. Uh, I don't quite know what you do when there's charismatic activity, but that's obviously an emergency. Now, of course, at the other end of the spectrum, you have the more uh, Pentecostal approach, which is to assume uh, that what we see in Acts is actually a template in, in almost every way for what we see, uh, should see today. And I'll say a few things in a moment about that. But as ever, we need to try and find a way through. Now, I have to say that I am not a believer in the idea that we should always seek balance. I, I, I slightly sort of cringe a bit when people talk about balance and trying to find the, the middle road, the via media, which is a sort of very Anglican thing to do, and it sounds very reasonable. Because um, sometimes, actually, the middle path can get you into real trouble especially if it's between something that's really very, very wrong and something else that's very, very right. A middle path is not going to help you out at all. But there are moments and there are certainly times when it is appropriate. And I think Uncle John, uh, John Stott, got it absolutely spot on in his Bible Speaks Today commentary on Acts. There's one left. Um, But it is a cracking, cracking book. And he said this. If – I won't do the accent this time – if we take the um, scriptures as our guide we will avoid opposite extremes. We will neither describe miracles as never happening nor as everyday occurrences. Neither as impossible nor as normal. Instead we will be entirely open to God who works through nature and through miracles. I think I would take it a bit further and to say that actually one of the, the, the ways that our sort of worldview thinking has gone slightly pear-shaped is to make a distinction between the sacred and the secular, and to see that basically um, God you know, is only at work in the sort of, in quotes, miraculous, spiritual, sacred, whatever sphere, and that the secular is separate. Well, basically, that is a worldview that the modernists want us to have, because they want to be able to push us into an ever-increasingly tight corner. So that eventually we become irrelevant because we've got nothing to do with the public sphere. I think that is a travesty, but I think also it completely fails to do justice to what the Bible teaches about God. He's the creator of everything. And that actually, in God's universe, there's no distinction. It's all His, it's all sacred. There's no distinction. And one of the failings, I think, a lot of the time is that, basically, we we assume that God is only at work in the sort of spontaneous or the strange, and we forget to see the wonder and the miracle of God's work in the mundane. You see, uh, as I go around doing preaching conferences in various places uh, with Langham Partnership, almost without fail, at every conference we do, there'll be people who come from a sort of more Pentecostal background. There certainly were many when we were in Uganda. And... um we spend a lot of time talking about how the different processes and things that one needs to think through in terms of preparing talks and how you study the Bible and so on. And it's, it can begin to see very involved and people, you know, if they've never had anything like that before, they begin to sort of balk at it and say, you've got to be kidding. And it, almost every time that fail, someone will say, well, what about the Spirit? And the Spirit's leading, well, I can. I think I can say from my own experience that I don't think I've preached a single sermon where I've preached exactly every single word I've got on the text. That you know, things have, in my notes, that things have occurred to mind as I've been going on, and and I trust that the Spirit is at work doing that. But the flaw, the failed thinking there, is to assume that God can only be at work when you're standing in the pulpit, not when you're in the study a few days before. The Spirit's at work the whole time. Why, why are we restricted? Actually, you see the irony is to say that just the Spirit just works in the spontaneous is to restrict God just as much as to say that he only works uh, like this or there is no whatever. Do you see the irony of that? God is God. He can do what he wants whenever he wants. So I'm c- uncomfortable with people being very quick to say God can't or God won't or God doesn't. I'm just slightly nervous of that sort of language. In the end, we have to trust his sovereignty. So if a dream or a miraculous healing is required to get somebody to trust him, then so be it. But that's not actually really the issue at all, is it? The issue is what is promised. What is normal? What can we expect? That's the question. So let's see what Luke is doing in Acts, Let's think about his purpose. And this is a question so often people forget, isn't it? What actually was Luke doing in Acts? I, I, I think I said in one of the sessions in the mornings that I think that Luke is aware of some of the potential dangers with what he's writing. I suspect he was fully aware that actually the whole issue of precedent and Prescription, description was one that was going to be attention. So we need to look what happens after you have um, a strange, what I would actually say is a unique salvation history event. The Samaritans seem to get converted twice. The apostles arrive, the Holy Spirit comes, and you have actually what is a second mini Pentecost. Now, as soon as you call it that, that raises some interesting things, doesn't it? The second mini-Pentecost. The first Pentecost in Acts 2 was for Jews. It was diverse culturally. There were people from all over the Roman Empire and beyond, the Parthian Empire and all kinds of other places. They were there, but they were all Jews. In Acts 8, you have a mini-Pentecost as suddenly Samaritans are included. And immediately after this, we saw this, didn't we? You have the Ethiopian eunuch's conversion. Now we're told very little about it. And to some extent, it's an argument from silence. We don't know whether or not there was sort of all kinds of sort of charismatic outbreak. But there certainly doesn't seem to be any indication at all that there was a double conversion needed. Or then take Cornelius. He's converted through the ministry of the chief apostle, through Peter, who himself, as we saw this morning, had to be converted to the idea that God was working beyond boundaries. And you have a sort of third mini-Pentecost. But then soon after, you have the church in Gentile Antioch planted, no apostles, no mini-Pentecost. You see, Luke seems to be saying, I think, that the combination of the apostolic and charismatic is particularly focused on key salvation history events. In other words, what do I mean by salvation history event? Well, it's one of those moments in God's purposes for the world that was integral to the next stage beginning. And um, uh, Chris Green in his uh, great book on Acts, and there's some copies left on the table, Um, but he actually does a really interesting study, and I've put it in the Colored Notes booklet, Um, but he groups together all the times when you find the Holy Spirit really being active in Acts. And what you find is that descriptions of the Spirit's work are not spread uniformly through Acts. There seem to be clusters of Holy Spirit verses at various points. And when you look at what those points are, you come up with rather an interesting list. Pentecost, uh, The commissioning of the twelve apostles in chapter 1, then Pentecost in chapter 2, then chapter 6, the choosing of the seven deacons to free up the apostles to preach and pray. That was a key event. Then chapter 8, the first Samaritan converts. Chapter 10, the first Gentile converts. Chapter 16, the gospel reaches Europe. And then chapter 20, Paul's trials in Jerusalem and Rome are foretold. Now, do you see that the Spirit is obviously at work throughout the story, but in the way that Luke is telling it, he's saying he is particularly at work at these unique moments. And so this is what Chris Green says. The fact that the Holy Spirit's work occurs in clusters and acts should emphasize for us that those events are particularly important. It's not downplaying the Spirit, far from it, the opposite in fact. Apart from the first, which is a promise of and preparation for the second, so Acts 1 and 2, which is Pentecost, each cluster can be seen to be about evangelism in some shape or another. So activating this principle highlights for us that the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts is to, and this is Chris Green's words, to push the churches outward into new missionary activity. And that this activity is focused on telling people about Jesus. Even Peter's sermon at Pentecost is a sermon about Jesus, not about the Holy Spirit. So do you see the point? And that's just, a, that, that's just simply a fact of, of what you have in, in the book of Acts. Now, I know that that doesn't answer all the questions, but I do think it is significant because a lot of debates and discussions about sort of Pentecostalism and charismatic stuff, grows out of Acts. So we've got to do justice to what's going on in Acts, do you see, to be able to, 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 to talk about that. Then what about, um, oh, sorry, there's, uh, um, I should have put that up there, you can see. Um, <clears throat> some, some, some key differences going on in, in, in the stories as one follows Another. So in Acts 8, you have the double conversion and then the Ethiopian, no double conversion, no apostles. Acts 10, 11, you have Cornelius and speaking in tongues and then Antioch is then planted with no apostles and no mention of anything else. It's not a a sort of end-all argument, this, but it is an interesting factor that needs to be taken into account. Oh, I had the... Cluster's there as well. I forgot about that. But that's in your booklet. So there we are. Let's move on. Luke's categories. I want to just think. use this as one example of a bigger issue. Uh, and, and that is to try and work out, well, what, is, what does Luke mean by certain things? And let's take the whole issue of speaking in tongues as a case in point. What does he mean? Or more to the point... Does what Luke says in Acts fit, or is it the same as what Paul is talking about in Corinthians? Is that the same experience he's referring to? So, for instance, in Acts 2, there's something very specific there. These tongues are languages that are understandable. The people who heard them immediately recognized them. They were Parthians there, and they said, flip, someone's speaking in Parthian. I can immediately understand what they're saying. No interpretation needed, they get it. There's something really quite remarkable about that. That immediately throws up the suggestion that there's something perhaps different about that, what happened in Acts two with what happens, for instance, after Cornelius is converted in Acts 10, but we can't really know. We don't know whether he suddenly started speaking Italian. And it's interesting, isn't it? In, in Corinth, Paul in one Corinthians fourteen is at great pains to get people to do what, um, to get the people to do uh, things that uh, are understandable, not least to the outsiders. So in one Corinthians fourteen, he says in verse twenty three, "If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some of you do not understand, and some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind?" And then verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. So that does seem to be something slightly different from the sort of Pentecost experience, do you see? Well, that immediately flags up that perhaps Pentecost was maybe unique, certainly very special, because you don't find that sort of experience anywhere else in the New Testament, as far as we know. I can remember, uh, when, and I know uh, other friends who've had the same, but when I was at university, one of my closest Christian friends was a guy who went to a charismatic church in Oxford, and um, I was profoundly challenged. As I said earlier about, you know, often folk from this sort of uh, background are acutely conscious of God's intervening work and power, and they they trust him to do remarkable things. And and I'm always conscious of how lily-livered I am about what I expect God to do and I prayed for the whole thing of speaking in tongues I was pretty scared about it I thought this is really weird for the reasons I was mentioning earlier it suddenly sort of blows your universe to something much bigger because there's a God out there who might do something with you I prayed for tongues but it didn't happen I was told just to open my mouth and I did And I was huh. I've got many friends who do praise the Lord that's great I can't maybe that's a cop out maybe I'm just I don't know but it's interesting isn't it that Paul takes a remarkably pragmatic view on all this doesn't he you know let's be sensible about this guys uh, in Corinth uh, you know one at a time have an interpretation it's not the big deal it's not the be all and end all it's great if you got it but it's not the biggest deal The most important thing is that people can understand what is heard so they can believe. And I guess we need to be pretty pragmatic about a large church like All Souls and what we do in our meetings. And I can tell you we are constantly juggling different things to do at our Sunday meetings, especially on on the mornings when you've got to get one lot in and one lot out and, you know, near the twain shall meet and all that. I suggest if there was a particular thing that you sensed that God was putting on your heart that all souls needed to hear, I guess the best thing would to to bring it to a prayer gathering on a Tuesday and talk to Hugh or, or me or whoever's leading and say, well, I think this is something. And, and part of the leader's prerogative is to say, yes, I think that's appropriate or no. But yeah, why not? The interesting thing is, when we look at Acts, the the big question I think we forget to ask is, whose initiative are these things? You know, the sort of so-called miraculous or charismatic events happen invariably without human initiative. You find this again and again. No one thought of asking for this particular miracle or that to happen. It just happened. There's no enforcement, there's no expectations, there's no sort of dimmed lights and sort of music sort of swelling and and all kinds of sort of emotional aggro going on to sort of prepare the ground for something remarkable to happen. It's just the unilateral act of God when some people get converted. I think that's quite revealing. God is God, and people pray, and God answers those prayers in all kinds of ways. Take, for instance, the, apostles, uh, the, the, the appeals of the early church for God to release their imprisoned leaders. We know that you know, when their leaders were in prison they met to pray, as you would. I would hope that if uh, Hugh and I, Rico, or whoever gets arrested for preaching the gospel in this country, which is not impossible in the years to come, I grow more conscious of that fact by day by day. I would hope you would pray earnestly for our release. It's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes they get released because an earthquake destroys the prison. That's quite cool. <laughs> Other times the authorities quietly release and dismiss them. Sometimes they get beheaded. God is God. So perhaps the issue is, is, is more about trusting in the intervening God to act in our lives but not to worry how he'll do it. He's a big God. But I think that's one reason why people strive after the spontaneous. You see, if it's spontaneous, well, of course, it must be the spirit because no one else could have thought of this. If it's planned or ordered... And, you know, there's a sort of typed-up program for what's going to happen. That's bound to quench the spirit, because, you know, he can't go against what's typed on the sheet. (laughs) But, of course, that's a false distinction that Paul wouldn't agree with for a minute. God is Lord of the spontaneous and the mundane. And anyway, the funny thing is, most people's idea of a spontaneous church service is usually pretty predictable. (laughs) and um, it's usually pretty well planned as well and is only there to give the air of spontaneity. You know, unless they are incredible musicians, the band must rehearse. Unless, of course, they're you too. (laughs) Let me draw some of these thoughts together. I think let's sort of sum it up under the idea of you know, possibilities not expectations what you find I think well put it this way Jesus describes the Holy Spirit in John 3 as like the wind you can't see the wind but you can certainly see its effects and the Spirit does extraordinary things very often in pioneering situations and I think you can see this a sense of this sort of thing in, in Acts but But God works in different places in different ways in the best way to work in that place. So just because one thing is appropriate in one place doesn't make it in another. God is God. The problem comes, you see, is I think when we try and base our entire expectation of God's activity on these sorts of occurrences... We subtly shift our understanding that these are all possible ways for God to act into thinking that they're the only way that God must act. Which is to limit God. Who do we think we are? But I think there is a subtler and actually more important reason why we need to think this clearly. You see, I think that one of the reasons people are looking for these sort of experiences in their heart of hearts is because they want assurance. They want to know that God is there, that he's active, that he loves them, that he's involved in little old me. Who doesn't want that? And there are dark days, there are dark nights when it's very hard to keep plodding on and you think I can't do this and God where are you Lord I want you to act I want you to do something just to remind me of why I believe this just to make me sure that this is really true especially on those dark days don't you can't you relate to that I think it's one of the biggest spiritual needs of our generation that to know that God is alive and active because the philosophers have told us that he's dead and we don't quite know how to react. The danger is, you see, then what we're beginning to do is derive our Christian assurance from our experiences of God. And that leads to rather a dangerous pattern of inward looking and navel gazing as we look further and further within for something, some little spark, some little sign that God's there and at work, rather than looking to the cross. You want assurance that God loves you? God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. One of my, well I'll tell you more about this best friend at university. He used to speak in tongues and um, he, uh, he completely fell away in our fourth year. We were sharing a house and um, it was a really weird year. I, we, we began the year, we were a house of seven. We began the year with. Six of us regularly going to church and um, of different types and going for it Christian-wise. And we ended the year with me being the only one. It was a really odd year. I hope it wasn't my fault, but I have a horrible feeling it might have been. Um, But including this dear friend, a very brilliant guy. He's an engineer. He designs fighter airplanes now. I mean, he's pretty clever. Um, But do you know what really threw him? and led to the slippery slope, is when he suddenly discovered that this phenomenon of speaking in tongues had been discovered in certain pagan tribes in the Amazon. That there seems to be, and this is not surprising if we're God-made, that there seems to be some sort of innate human ability to, to utter these things. If it's divine language, I don't know, but... That There seems to be a phenomenon that anthropologists know about. And it completely threw him because that was what he based his assurance that God was active and loved him and true on. And when he suddenly discovered that it didn't seem to be uniquely Christian, it collapsed. Well, you know, <laughs> non-Christians have the ability to speak. Non-Christians have the ability to love. Non-Christians have the ability to do all kinds of things. I would say that's all God-given. It's part of how we're wired up. Because we're human, made by God in his image. No, my assurance is not based on those experiences. Good and important and wonderful and helpful, though they all might be. No, my ability, my assurance is grounded at the cross. So let me finish very quickly. Where can we be sure that the Spirit is at work? One preacher I know used to say very provocatively, and it is provocative, but he said this. Show me a church that is full of Jesus, and I'll show you a church that's full of the Spirit. Show me a church that's full of the Spirit, and I'll show you a church that's full of hot air. It's a bit rude, isn't it? Sorry about that. This is what Jim Packer writes in his brilliant book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. With a perversity as pathetic as it is impoverishing we have become preoccupied with the extraordinary, the sporadic, the non-universal ministries of the Spirit to neglect the ordinary great ones. Thus, we show a great deal more interest in the gifts of healing and tongues, gifts which, as Paul pointed out, not all Christians are meant to partake anyway, than we do in the Spirit's ordinary work and great work of giving peace, joy, hope, love through the shedding abroad in our hearts of the knowledge of the love of God. And then this is what the great preacher Spurgeon said. I looked at Christ and the dove of peace flew into my heart. I looked at the dove and it flew away. Let's pray. Father, we've thought about a lot of things. And I confess that it's just a, a, some rambly thoughts and there are many more things that we could and should say and think about. We do want to do justice to you, who you are. In all three persons, we want to do justice to what you have revealed in your word by your spirit. Correct us where we are wrong. Rebuke us where we are disobedient. Change us where our sin and sinful nature rule the roost by your spirit lord make us the people you want us to be in jesus name amen thank you very much you have 10 15 minutes before a quiz